Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Reid. I'm a naturopathic doctor. And today I'm going to be joined by Carrie B. Wellness. Um, that's her handle on Instagram and other social media platforms. And uh, Carrie B. talks about um, a lot of fascinating topics uh, related to uh, mitochondrial function, um, the importance of getting a light exposure, the importance of uh, the quality of, um, of the water that we consume and the water Water inside of our bodies, and just a lot of really cool biohacking things that um, apply to really anyone in the general populace. But um, in uh, as it relates to folks with complex chronic illness, there are the essentially my take home message from from what I've seen on her uh, social media um, posts and whatnot are things that we can uh, that patients can apply um, to their cases um, to help kind of complement some of the other things that we're working on, like killing infections, detoxifying mold things and things to that effect. So um, Carrie will be joining or Carrie B will be joining me in just a second. Um, just before uh, we jump into the interview, I just want to quickly mention if you're not already on my mailing list, um, please consider um, jumping on that mailing list. Um, there's a link to join um, in the uh, show notes of the podcast, or if you're watching this on YouTube, um, there's a link in the uh, description below. Um, if you join my mailing list, um, it, you'll get um, access to the first two parts of my overcoming chronic illness course at no cost. Um, it's a course that basically is a, a very deep dive into all of the, in my opinion, the, the major uh, most important topics to consider when folks are navigating the waters of complex chronic illness. So uh, just a little plug for that. Um, again, free to anyone signing who signs up on my newsletter. Plus you'll be on my newsletter and just get to hear my weekly um, you know, musings and, and just updates about things that are happening uh, with my practice, things I'm excited about uh, with treatments for patients and things like that. So uh, without further ado, I shall pause uh, the recording here for just one sec and, and uh, I'll be right back with Carrie B. All right, everyone. So I'm joined now by Carrie Bennett, also known as Carrie B. Wellness. So uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Carrie. And uh, would you mind just um, giving the listeners a little overview of um, who you are and what, what you're all about with uh, your clinical offerings? Oh, thanks, Brian. I'm excited to chat with you today. Um, sure. So my uh, my clinical offerings have actually varied substantially kind of as I've evolved in what I think my my clients really benefit from right and so if if you throw me back 20 years i um i'm a, i'm a personal trainer right I, I graduate from undergrad with a biology degree and i'm supposed to um go to get a phd or a doctor right i'm supposed to be an md or a phd and none of that really rang true for me um and and so you know i was an athlete my whole life and i also had this mental breakdown and said i, I don't want to do those like I'm being that th just doesn't just doesn't vibe with me and so i actually decided at that point to go into massage therapy school um and that's the and my i had the coolest parents they were so supportive but it was basically like yeah get a job put yourself through massage therapy school let's see where it goes so um so i became a personal trainer as that job you know to go through massage therapy school and a couple of cool things happened with that um, number one, I just, you know, I, I opened a little studio and I started really working with clients one-on-one -on -one in personal training only, which was super cool because it was my passion at the time. And I got to view the body from a completely different perspective than I did in undergrad, more of an Eastern philosophy of acupressure points and how, how energy flows and how we can get stuck and stagnant when I, through the massage therapy program. So it was like a really cool little shift. Of okay, I'm working with people and their bodies um, in a clinical setting, if you will, as a personal trainer. But wow, this is neat. This is different, and I and I want to kind of go a little bit more into that. 
but you know, just trying to, you know, improve my business and, and offering people massage, offering people personal training. It was, it was great. But then people started coming to me and it's just like, you know, I've got this chronic fatigue or I, you know, I just, I just, I just can't get over this, you know, these migraines, all these chronic migraines. And I was like, wait a second, you mean there's more to this than like exercise and massage? And, <laughs> and then I was I, given my own um, health journey, you know, I, I call it a, I call it an opportunity um, where my, after the birth of my first, uh, my first child, Luke, I uh, all of a sudden developed, developed debilitating fatigue, horrible stomach pains, you name it. It was just the, the, the symptoms of what, like what, what, what people told me, oh, you're a new mom. That's what it's, that's what it's supposed to feel like. You're supposed to be tired all the time, mm -hmm. feel bloated, uh, have no energy inflamed. You know? And I was just like, I don't buy into it. Um, and so I went back to school at that point to get a master's degree in clinical nutrition, which was cool. Another whole way to view the body right through the lens of nutrition. And so I started applying some of this uh, additional information I had learned and it moved the needle a little bit but I still wasn't feeling great, right? I still wasn't feeling great. I still had like this feel, this feeling of I could take a nap at any moment and um, I, I need that nap at any moment. Uh, then that was during the day. And then this weird aspect at night of I'm physically tired, but I'm wired. I'm getting the second wind. I can't shut it down. What's going on? Um, and that's when I discovered the work of Dr. Jack Cruz and dove down a rabbit hole of what light is doing to my body? What light am I under throughout the day and how it's influencing my energy metabolism, even my sleep, right? My ability to recover. And as I started to apply that to my life, and then also in these clinical settings, that was what really was foundational in moving my health journey forward. And so that's where I love to start clients these days. While I do think nutrition and movement and, and massage and other, other modalities are super important, I like to lay what I call the foundation of light and quantum health strategies. So I guess these days I do call myself a quantum clinician, if that's a thing, because I want people to recognize that there's another be. layer. It should be, right? Because there's another layer that we could maybe view the body and how we can be supportive in people's health journeys. That's that's amazing. That's a great that's a great backstory, and uh, just uh, for folks who aren't familiar with uh, Dr. Jack Cruz, um, you know when <clears throat> you're saying that you went down a rabbit hole, like I'm trying to think of like what's like I don't know like the biggest hole, like it's like the Grand Canyon basically. Like I, I I spent like months going through like all of his online articles, watching videos. Like oh my gosh, he's got so much content, and like just gets into he's a neurosurgeon. He's I a think. neurosurgeon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like just gets right deep into it. So anyways, yeah, no, that's, he's, he's a great mentor. Uh, that, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And, and as I, I didn't know that Jack Cruz had played a, a, his, uh, a role in your, uh, your, your development of, of everything you're teaching is like, oh, I can see a lot of the, 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 the overlap there now for sure. That's great. Well, I, I'd really like to talk about how, um, you know, these, uh, types of concepts apply to folks with complex chronic illness, but, um, kind of before we, um, get into that, if we could maybe talk about a little bit more foundational stuff, um, so um, on your, uh, well, I was looking at your website and I see your kind of official website is kind of under development. So you sort of have this, this link tree on your uh, Instagram, which has all of your uh, course offerings and things like that. And so I thought maybe a good uh, framework to kind of just um, make sure that we kind of get listeners up to speed on some of the foundational elements of what uh, types of things you talk about um, is uh, just kind of talking about sort of the general framework of your, or some of the general elements of your quantum foundations course. So um, you have this quantum foundations, uh, light, water, electrons, and mitochondrial healing course, um, which, you know, the 
the outline for it looks looks awesome, covers a lot of lot of ground, which is great. And so I'm wondering if we can just again I can ask you a few questions around each of those kind of major topics. Um, so the uh, the first question is, what would be say uh, the biggest one to three takeaways um, from the light part of your course? Which I'm sure there's probably dozens of takeaways, but what would be sort of, sort of one of the, one one or two or three of the biggest takeaways? Sure. Yeah. Light is light is really key for us to start off with. And that's why I lay it first in this course, because we are beings that respond to light signaling in a lot of different ways. Light, we, uh, I, I think this word I think is much more common now than it was 10 years ago, but our circadian rhythm, right? That we are, human beings have a circadian rhythm. And in fact, every living creature on this planet has a circadian rhythm. And what that means foundationally is that we've been tuned into light cycles, we know that every 24 hours, there's a certain period of light and a certain period of darkness. And in order to optimize our physiology, because we have 100,000 tasks happening in every single cell, every single second. And so in order to coordinate this really complex being that I am, we've queued into certain signals. So it would make no sense for me to be running programs that my body would want to do like deep tissue repair, which would happen at sleep, right? That'd be wasteful. Likewise, it'd be really silly for me to have my digestion running all like digestive juices being pr produced all night long when I probably am not going to be consuming any food. And so the, if you, if the human body has been studied to recognize that we do have these circadian tasks that happen on a daily basis, but it cues into light and the colors that of light that are coming to me from my environment. And so I really like to lay the foundation that when whatever location I'm in, the sun is going to start to lighten the sky. And as it does it, it starts to brighten and intensify and layer on different colors, just as we would see light split through a prism or through a rainbow. And so we what we don't we, what we're never really taught is that those colors, the ratios, the intensities, the colors that come to us very predictably all day long. And so it's this change in this layering of colors that number one starts with what I would call my circadian rhythm. It's it starts my body recognizing it's daytime. Carrie's no longer in deep tissue repair mode. She's no longer encoding memories. She's awake. She's in day mode. And then based on the colors that get layered, kind of different programs get 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 uh, um, kicked off, right? Get activated. And so that morning sunlight is really key. I tell people in order to kind of tell your body that it's daytime, you have to get outside around sunrise, get that sunrise light into your eyes because that kicks off your circadian clock. So the light that's there has this beautiful blend of red and blue and infrared. And those colors actually communicate through your eyes to a clock in your brain called your suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that clock will literally coordinate every cell in your body because every cell in our body has clock genes that are based on specific timing mechanisms. So they need to know the time of day in order to, let's say, uh, make this protein versus not make that protein. And so we kind of start that mechanism off with sunrise light. So that's a key thing that I like people to look at uh, is making sure you're getting some morning light to be able to start your circadian day. But then if you look at it from the other perspective, we also have to then after sunset, when certain light frequencies that would have kept us awake and alert, specifically blue light frequencies, when those go away from our environment, we have to make sure that we do we potentially artificially also keep the blue light from entering our eyes and communicating that it's still daytime so we can go into that repair mode at night so you know really getting to understand that we optimize different functions for daytime versus nighttime and that we have to 
keep those signals strong based on the light that we allow into our eyes or we don't allow into our eyes at night so that we can actually run the programs we're designed to run. That's that's great. A um, couple of follow-up questions to that, if you don't mind. Um, sure. So as I um, certainly, I know when your social media posts, you, you talk about this a lot because it's super important. I've heard some other very smart people also talk about this quite a lot. Um, I just feel like I get hit over the head time and time again of like, oh yeah, like make sure you do your early morning like light gazing, stay away from that artificial light. Um, thankfully, I have a wife who's a very, very big fan of yours, by the way. It's like, oh, I'm interviewing Carrie B. And she's like, oh my gosh. Like, but anyway, she was, she was very excited. So you're, you're a big fan here in, in Nova Scotia Yay. and my wife. Um, but uh, one of the things that I haven't really heard a whole lot of discussion about, maybe delve into this in your course, but, um, you know, say a person's, you know, uh, they're, they're, they have a busy schedule, like many people do, um, what would be kind of the minimum amount of time that someone might want to, you know, be gazing, uh, get, getting some natural light into their eyes, um, you know, say er, as early in the morning as possible? You know, at that sunrise light, what's really cool is you just have to get the stimulus to kind of kick start the, the clock or kickstart the day. Mm -hmm. And once you do that for maybe three to five minutes, so it's not a long time, mm -hmm. you just basically say, okay, it's morning, we're kicking off these processes. And then the hypothalamus kicks in and does what it does. It talks to the pituitary gland, it communicates to the adrenals, the ovaries, the thyroid, and you get a whole, just, you, you just have to kind of kickstart that cascade on a consistent basis. And mm -hmm. so it's not a lot of time. It's just mm -hmm. doing it consistently. Great. So a person could drink their morning coffee while doing that or do some stretches or, you know, try to try to multitask it if they are in a rush and hopefully uh, brush their teeth on their on their back porch, you know, whatever it is. Exactly. And, okay. you know, like right now in Michigan, the timing is such that for me, it's right after school drop off. So, you know. I try to mitigate, you know, headlights and stuff as much as possible. And then sometimes I'm literally in a parking lot and I'm just staring through the sunroof or through open windows trying to catch those light signals. So it doesn't have to look like this perfect, you know, three hour morning routine for it to be effective. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and then just another follow-up question on this. So uh, again, lots of folks out there, not lots, but you know, a number of folks out there talking about, you know, the importance of this. I haven't really heard anybody talk about whether it's important or not to um, kind of get a little spot check of natural light through the day. Like I, I like the way it's, it's great the way you explained it, how like, you know, just as the sun's, you know, rising, you know, in the, in the horizon and all of that, and, you know, sending different uh, um, blends of, you know, uh, light rays, you know, in, into, onto us. Um, I don't know any, any thoughts or do you know about like, oh, should you do this like every two hours if you could, you know, just to get like, you know, okay, now I have 10 a.m. light and noon light and 2 p.m. light or sure. is that, is that asking a little too much? Or no, it's a great question. And yeah, like, so here's what, here's what I've found clinically to be the most effective, right? It's two in the morning is really when we have to almost front load our little light breaks. And then I have what I kind of call a circadian dead zone. And I guarantee you, we're going to find out in the next 30 years that there's important things happening there. Right. But just from a clinical perspective, I find that sunrise time is really key. And then when UVA light starts to appear in your location, and that varies time of year based on where we are on the planet. And there's an app called circadian app that will tell you in your location. So I've got clients download that app and I have them in that UVA window. Um, I have them get a, another little hit of light. If it's five minutes, great. If they can take a phone call outside and it's 20 minutes, even better. You know, and so if they can catch that UVA light, that's really special because what that UVA light does is what I, I call it neurotransmitter magic. It starts to take 
these amino acids that are kind of still amino acids that make us feel a little bit calmer and groggier, and it converts them into um, feel good chemicals in the brain. So for example, we got a lot of these amino acids in the backs of our eyes and they're called aromatic amino acids. They kind of pool in our eyes and they're swimming through that blood. And what they're looking to do is the aromatic because they take a funny little ring shape or a really cool ring shape. And I don't think people, I, this, I never made this connection, Brian, you know, studying any, anything in undergrad or grad school. I never made the connection that these are just molecules full of electrons that are waiting to be excited by light. Mm. So something that's important to understand is that light excites electrons and gives them almost like a burst of energy to then become something else to kind of c- continue down this biochemical pathway. And it just so happens that these aromatic amino acids, phenylalanine, dope, uh, phenylalanine, tyrosine, tryptophan, they're waiting for that UVA light because it's intent, it's an intense enough wavelength of light. So once those amino acids get that UVA hit of light, then they can become, for example, tyrosine can become dopamine. Uh, tryptophan can become serotonin. Uh, phenylalanine can become noradrenaline or, or norepinephrine. Like all of these neurochemicals that actually make us feel good and curious and motivated and focused throughout our day. So, you know, um, I get clients who kind of feel like they live in zombie land because they don't necessarily, are, indoor light doesn't have this, right? So they're never getting this stimulus to take these these neuro, these aromatic amino acids and actually make them into really uh, powerful brain chemicals that make us more productive and motivated and enjoying our day. So UVA is a really key time. I also say if you have UVB and you can make vitamin D, that's another five to 15 minute hit of time outside. Because then if you can make some vitamin D through your skin, not only are you making the vitamin D that we test in blood, or there's sometimes two metabolites we test in blood, you're actually making about 50 to hundred metabolites that we don't, that we don't realize are really just as equally as important as the vitamin D, the 25 or the 125 itself. So, um, so yeah, those are key times. And so I tell people, if you can kind of take those little breaks and then say from, after you do that morning vitamin D, give if you really need to sit down and do stuff indoors, you got about three hours there. Like go ahead, get inside. And then, you know, it's also kind of nice and soothing to get outside in the evening to acknowledge that the day is waning, stuff is shutting down. And that's when we would also ultimately at darkness block that artificial light so that we can allow our body to get into that regeneration mode. But anytime we go outside, we're literally sinking right up because the colors are different. So we're getting the, t- the timing mechanism really um, on point and synced up anytime we can get outside. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to download that circadian app later today. So that's, that's awesome. I did not cool. know most of that. So thank, thank you for that. That's great. Sure. Um, and uh, I'm sure, you know, a lot of folks listening um, either personally or have heard other folks say like, yeah, you know, I'm taking my vitamin D all winter, but like, man, when it comes, like, especially those that we were talking before we started recording, how we've been, you're, you being in Michigan, I'm in Nova Scotia, we've had a pretty dark winter so far, you know, shorter days, all that, um, you know, folks will say like, you know, when that sunlight comes out, I just feel so much better. And it's like, yeah, probably because there's not 50 metabolites in that vitamin D bottle. You know, it's just your, just your plain old vitamin D. That's it. So exactly. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a great tip. Um, just, just out of curiosity, kind of on topic, but off topic, um, are you uh, familiar with photodynamic therapy? Um, sure. 
Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So just sounds, reminded me a lot of that when you're talking about the um, aromatic uh, amino acid activation, where it's like, yeah, just this beautiful, like, just give us some more electrons and, you know, the form of light and it activates these molecules. Uh, exactly. what, what's, would you mind speaking to photodynamic therapy a little bit uh, just for folks who aren't familiar with it? Well, sure. It's basically like this idea that um, chemicals, whether they're in our bodies themselves, or we can take certain chemicals exogenously, that they can, you can uh, amplify their effect when you're also exposed to light at the same time. So photo light dynamic, kind of the synergistic action that happens here. <clears throat> and one of my favorite actually ones to talk about is methylene blue. I've seen you some, might say that. Yeah. Some really, some really cool, uh, cool progress for clients when they've incorporated methylene blue appropriately. So it's one that really, um, whether you use it methylene blue plus sunlight or methylene blue plus red light therapy, that's such a synergistic combo for the mitochondria. That's great. I, I was, I was going to ask you about methylene blue a little bit later on because I know you posted about it. And I, I think it's one of the coolest compounds out there. Um, uh, so folks who are taking methylene blue, if they're using, like when you're talking about red light therapy, like is that like a like a red light panel kind of thing, like a, yeah. something like that? Yep, so what, exactly. what kind of So what kind of things have you heard folks report from that? Like they are they reporting better energy or like what what are the things they typically note? Typically, they will know, excuse me, better energy, mental clarity, and also sometimes a reduction in pain, right? Because if you can get those mitochondria to make more energy in a tissue, then you're going to start to see pain resolve itself, inflammation resolve itself. So those are the, the main things that I see. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, moving on to the next topic in your Quantum Foundations course. Um, so would you mind uh, giving the listeners a quick um, overview of what easy water is? <laughs> My favorite topic of all time. Um, yeah, so easy water stands for exclusion zone water, which was a term popularized by researcher Dr. Gerald Pollack, who wrote the fourth phase of water. And so if you think about that title, you're like, fourth phase of water, I was only taught that water exists as a solid, a liquid and a gas. And so what we have to recognize is that the water inside of our bodies, actually the majority of it isn't like a liquid, like we would see swirling around in a glass. Yes, we've got liquid water in our blood. Yes, we've got liquid water in our lymphatic system. But the majority of the water that's found inside of ourselves and just around ourselves in the extracellular space is actually structured and organized into um, a consistency that's more of like a jello or a jelly-like consistency. And so it's a fourth phase. It's not, it's kind of between a solid and a liquid. And so we call it a liquid crystalline state. Um, and we say liquid crystalline state because if ever you were to look at, let's say you were to look at a diamond under a microscope, a molecular microscope, right? And you would see that all of the atoms are very much ordered and arranged. They're, they're arranged in these really set patterns, repeating patterns. So, so that's the same thing that happens with water. Actually, it, if it, in water in a glass H2O, it kind of sloshes around. Like, so this H2O molecule that's bonded to itself is going to all of a sudden kind of interact with this H2O molecule that's bonded to itself, but they switch partners. Like things like here and then there, it's kind of a random dance that happens. But that water inside of our cells, it organizes the H's and the O's into, hex, into hexagons into sheets of hexagon. So picture like a honeycomb look to it. And so it's just a bunch of H's and O's that are or organized into these hexagonal, uh, these sheets of hexagons. And this forms next to all biological surfaces, all hydrophilic or water loving surfaces, which Brian, you know this, they're everywhere, right? Every, all throughout the cell, it's packed full of these hydrophilic surfaces. 
And so that means that H2O inside of the body, anytime it comes into contact with these surfaces, it structures itself into this kind of crystalline ordered state that still has some fluid and some flow. So it's a liquid. And as it does that, as it organizes itself into this structured state, if you were to do some chemistry math, you would count the H's and you'd count the O's and you'd be like, wait a second, it's no longer H2O, it's H3O2. And in order for it to form H3O2, it has to kick out a hydrogen. And so then you're like, wait a second, if it's H3O2 and it kicks out a hydrogen, a hydrogen is basically just a, a proton. It's the simplest atom on the periodic table. It kicks out a positively charged hydrogen. Well, that means that instead of being neutral, like water in a glass with no net charge, it's got a negative charge to it. And that hydrogen doesn't just kind of fly away willy nilly. That, that hydrogen proton stays right next to this, this exclusion zone water, this structured liquid crystalline water stays right next to it. So now you have next to all biological surfaces, a negatively charged area next to a positively charged area. When you stick electrodes and in microelectrodes into the positively charged area and the negatively charged area, you light a light bulb. So you've got potential energy. The water in our bodies forms a battery of potential energy that helps to unfold proteins for them to do their work. It helps to um, it helps to funnel electrons actually to where uh, they, they might be needed. For example, um, into the mitochondria, which we know, which, which I'm sure we'll talk about at another point here. Um, but yeah, once I realized that that water in our bodies, that easy water, forms a battery of potential energy and has a negative charge because the interior of my cells are meant to have a negative charge. Well, it means that if I'm depleted, depleting that negative charge, I've depleted my easy water. I've depleted my potential energy, that battery of energy. And there's things that we can do to support that and build it back up inside of us. That's great. That's the best explanation of easy water I've ever heard. So oh, thank, th you. thank you. Thank you for that. That was great. Um, and um, so take home for folks in case, you know, you got lost at hexa hexagonal <laughs> um, was it very, very well explained. But I feel like if I didn't have like hadn't been exposed to this before, I'd be like, oh, I might, might have got a little bit lost there. Sure, but, sure. Uh, but no, it was, it, was, it was a great explanation. So please re-listen if that if that in case the, you got lost there as a listener. Um, but um, it, big take home message is like this is like super, super, super important. So um, as we'll hopefully talk about uh, right shortly, if you're open to it, you know, there are certain things you can do to. Uh, help that easy water be formed. And there are certain things that um, basically degrade that easy water or interfere with its uh, ability to be formed. So, you know, pay attention to that because this stuff is like super, super important, like on the deepest cellular level. Um, just before we uh, kind of maybe start delving into that a little bit more, if you don't mind. Um, so, you know, we, you've described what easy water is uh, very thoroughly. Um, so what's the, what's the importance of that easy water? Like you're talking about like, you know, en energy potential and this and that, which is sure. great, but um, could you maybe tr um, uh, explain how that would apply to like, okay, what would we be feeling as individuals if like we have good amounts of easy water um, in our tissues versus uh, low amounts in our cells? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, It's fascinating. So uh, one of the things where someone has easy, low easy water is actually tissue stiffness. Um, it's, it's, it's some interesting research to dive into, to recognize that in the, this particular area of research, they call it bound water pet peeve, right? They call it a different thing, depending on where, who's researching it. Um, but they found that if you got that someone who just always feels like they've got, oh, I'm always stiff, you know, I've always got these nagging aches and things like that. Their stiffness, that's an indication that you've got low, easy water. Um, so tissue stiffness is a common one, but so is just simply, um, feeling puffy or bloated. 
because easy water is actually a little denser than regular water, quote unquote. And so if you if you've got a lot of of what's called bulk water, typical liquid water, that's where you're going to feel like puffy or like almost like a little bit extra edema and this buildup of, of bloat. And so that's another key right there, as is just, you know, what's your, what's your energy status? Because not only does the easy water contribute directly to your body's, you know, energy and, and need for energy, but mitochondria make water uh, and mitochondria are also make ATP, another currency that can be used for energy and other things in the body. So if you're fatigued, if you're inflamed, both of those things really brain fog, you know, that's a brain, such a, the mitochondrially dense part of the body that if uh, those are pretty much key tip offs to me that you do not either make enough water in your body, in your mitochondria, or you're depleted of that easy water. Okay. That's great. Thanks. Um, yeah. And this is just a good time to remind everybody that uh, we're just talking about things for informational purposes. Uh, nothing, none of this should be construed as medical advice. Uh, if you need medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider to get that advice. Um, so uh, just kind of as a, you know, for myself as a clinician or other clinicians that are listening. So, you know, because I mean, fatigue, it's like everything causes fatigue, right? So sure. that doesn't narrow it down a whole lot. But um, I, I can certainly say from my own clinical experience, while I've had many patients with like puffiness or, or stiffness, like that's not a, you know, as much of a universal symptom, shall we say, as fatigue. So that, that's really helpful to me as a clinician to kind of narrow that down a bit more. And um, as we'll talk about um, coming up shortly, like a lot of just um, you know, healthy lifestyle practices can oftentimes help with um, encouraging um, easy water or dissuading, you know, uh, um, interference with easy water formation. And so like, lo and behold, it's probably why folks will come in like, yeah, I'm just kind of feel kind of puffy. And then they make some healthy lifestyle changes and like, oh, I'm not puffy anymore. It's like, well, it might be all down to that easy water level. It's not like suddenly, oh, my kidneys are working so much better or something like that. Or my lymphatic system just started working better. It's like, no, that, that easy water is probably a, a big part of it based on what sure. you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of on that note, um, is there, hmm, um, could, could you speak to a link between, uh, if there's one that's been established that you're aware of, um, between having good amounts of uh, like appropriate amounts of easy water and lymphatic system flow or, or lymph congestion, if you don't have enough easy water? You know, it's a great point. You know, I've made some extrapolations simply because we know that exclusion zone water propels flow. And the study that showed that was, it's in a lab, but in a lab, you can kind of mimic what the inside of vessels um, have, like the substance that lines blood vessels, for example, or lymphatic vessels. You can kind of mimic that with a substance called naphion. And so when a naphion tube, a hollow naphion tube is set sideways into a bed of water, the water without any like initiation starts automatically flowing and it will stay in a perpetual flow state. And so what we're finding is that this, this negatively charged exclusion zone um, helps to propel flow when it's liquid water that's, or a liquid state that's being, that's being moved. And so that actually would explain why, if you think about it in the capillaries, 
red blood cells are oftentimes larger than the capillaries themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, we would need a massive amount of blood pressure to push those red blood cells through. So something must be assisting. And so that's the theory behind it now is that exclusion zone water is assisting flow both to get to the capillary and to kind of pull the red blood cell through the capillary and into the venous system. And so that's one thing. And so then what there, so there's more research that's being done on that. Um, but my thought is, well, it's always puzzled me why the lymphatic system doesn't have a pump. Like why, like why, why doesn't it have something that moves it? And yeah, I guess we're meant to move our bodies to help with lymph flow, but I'm recognizing that as I help clients reestablish exclusions on water levels in the body, I feel like their lymphatic drainage picks up massively. And so my thought is that the vessels of the lymphatic system must also work on this flow-based, exclusion zone water flow-based mechanism. So if we build easy water, actually we see improved blood flow. We also see, I've seen improved lymph flow as well. That is awesome. And just uh, pretty, typing pretty notes cool. here as you're go, going <laughs> along here. So um yeah, no, that's really fascinating. And, and like just, just the other day and on many occasions, I thought to myself, cause I talk to patients about lymph flow all the time. And it's like, yeah, sure. like your lymph doesn't really move a whole heck of a lot unless your muscles are contracting. But I think like, you know, if you're lying in bed for eight hours a night, like, why don't we all just have like all this, all of our lymphs in our backs? Like, you know what, it just doesn't make sense. Like there's gotta be more to it than that. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, just with lymphatic flow, like just so important for so, so very many things. So, um, yeah, that's, Awesome. Absolutely. Okay. That's great. Well, um, I guess one question, which you maybe already touched on a little bit, just when I was going through the outline of your uh, Quanta Foundations course um, in the water and electron section, um, you had the, uh, the one section that's uh, entitled Connective Tissue Superhighway, which now I have more insight into that, I think, uh, based on what you said about folks feeling um, stiffness and whatnot. But um, is there more around, like, could uh, could you just oh, maybe explain? I could, yeah, I've, I've taught entire workshops on this topic because it's so cool, right? It's so cool. So we, um, we, this, in all of my studies of anatomy, whenever I was taught to maybe dissect something, it was always, Hey, that's like connective tissue or fascia cut away at that so that we can see the kidney or cut away at that. So we can see like mm -hmm. a more, supposedly a more important structure. Mm -hmm. And what you have, what I recognize with all of this is that this connective tissue, it's everywhere top to bottom. And not only does it stay outside of the cells, but it kind of forms more finer and finer matrixes or, 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 or webbing, if you will. So it goes from these big bands of fascia that maybe we can feel on the side of our leg or in our low back to then at the outside of the cell, it's part of the extracellular matrix. It goes through the cell via something called an integrin or an integral membrane protein or a transmembrane protein. And then inside of the cell, it becomes the cytoskeleton. It can go into the nucleus. It becomes the nu nuclear matrix. So again, this is an example of we name it different things at different scales, but it's all the same stuff. And so basically we've got this webbing all throughout our bodies, connecting the interior of every single cell and every organelle and every single cell all together. And it's a hydrophilic surface. So it's also surrounded by exclusion zone water. And one of the things that I didn't mention when I talked about exclusion zone water is that it's called exclusion zone because nothing can penetrate into it except electrons, photons, and phonons. So what that basically means is around this entire connective tissue network, we have this exclusion zone water that acts as a highway. 
that we can funnel electrons anywhere they're needed if they're if they're depleted. We can funnel light where it's needed, which is the basis for uh, oftentimes that that's being paralleled to uh, traditional Chinese medicine and the acupuncture meridians. And then we can also funnel vibrations. So we can ha- it has a vibratory component, so we can distribute another form of wireless communication throughout the body. So this is where I'm looking at the body and I'm asking, okay, does, do we have enough exclusion zone water to, so that this highway is, 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 is complete, right? Do we have a complete highway? And then is the highway intact or are we dealing with scars in certain areas or just adhered fascia, tightened fascia where, you know, um, if, if we have someone who's sitting at a desk all day, right. And we see this kind of kyphotic forward head posture, and we recognize, wait, their connective tissue is actually getting really dense in the back and creating these adhesions because it's trying to pull their head back on top of their shoulders. But as the fascia lays down new tracks, it's not as hydrated. It's kind of disorganized, not as beautifully aligned. And so um, that's another thing I think of. It's like, wait, that's we do know that there's a there's a lack of electrical conductivity when the fascia is dehydrated. So that means if my fascia in the back there is lacking exclusion zone water, I've got almost got a roadblock where I can't funnel energy and information. I can't funnel electrons and, and information to, to specific parts of the body. And so that's what I really go into when I talk about the quantum connective tissue superhighway. It's this ability, this, this interconnected web where we can send energy and information. I, I can see why it can be like an entire course just on that topic. Um, and uh, could you define for us slash for me, because I have no idea, I've never heard this word before. What, what is a phonon? Oh, it's sound. It's sound. Oh, okay. Oh, sound waves. Yeah, oh, cool. yeah, okay. yeah. I've heard absolutely. of those, but not by that name. Okay. Sure. Oh, very, very cool. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd like to go down that rabbit hole a little bit more. <laughs> I know. I hear you. A little, we, we're, we're not going to get through all this material. I'm, I'm making terrible time on my list of questions here. Um, <laughs> so I, I think at this point, um, my my assumption is folks listening are going to be chomping at the bit saying, okay, like I get it. Easy water is incredibly important <laughs> without this, right. like all life will end. Um, so <laughs> c- could you please speak to how um, we can enhance, uh, um, like just on a general level, like how can we enhance easy water in our bodies and how, uh, what are some things that might interfere with easy water? water formation. Yeah, that's a, that's a, obviously what people are wanting to hear right now. But just so you know, I mean, rigor mortis, right? Like zero easy water, yeah, the ultimate tissue stiffness. <laughs> um, so what we're thinking here, so, so what we now know is that this exclusion zone water can kind of charge itself up or expand based on the application of a, some, some key wavelengths of light. So as I mentioned before, you know, we can kind of d- divide light through a prism and we see different colors. And the fancy way to say that would be kind of each of those colors has a different wavelength range to it. And it just so happens that a specific wavelength range just outside of what our eyes can see called infrared is what charges up our exclusion zone water. It'll expand it. So if we're depleted and we apply infrared, and you can use these two words synonymously, light or heat. I'll I'll use them interchangeably because some of the infrared our body physically perceives as heat. Some of it our body doesn't, but it's all light basically we can't see. So this infrared light or infrared heat, when we apply it to areas that are depleted in exclusion zone water, you actually see up to or more than a fourfold expansion. So we charge up that exclusion zone water. And this is really important because these days living a modern lifestyle, number one, we're indoors most of the time and we're under artificial light. So being under artificial light, artificial light, unlike the sun, artificial light has zero infrared. 
right? We, we've made our light bulbs very energy efficient for the building, but it's zero infrared to charge up one of our own energy sources inside of us. So while the sun contains, you know, upwards of 40 to 50% infrared, indoors, we're not getting it. And then secondarily, window glass, again, in, in, to, to make our indoor living more energy efficient, window glass blocks almost all of the infrared as well. So being indoors, we're very, very infrared deficient. And hence why we, that hence why either I encourage my clients to go outside to get what I call like these easy water recharges, or a lot of times they have to supplement with a sauna, a panel, something like that. But, you know, dealing with, it's a fine line because dealing with clients who may not be able to truly use a sauna the way they think they should, I have to convince them that it's like, no, you don't have to get in there to where you're going to be in there for 40 minutes and feel like crap for, pardon my language, crap for like the next week, right? Because you've maybe overdone and released some sort of a toxin in, in a blocked pathway that your body can't clear. You're just going in there for five minutes to get the infrared. It soaks right into that water network of your body and it'll expand that exclusion zone water. So applying infrared can be a really key strategy to expand that battery, that expand that exclusion zone water. And then being aware, and I hate to say this, right? Because technology is what's connecting us, you know, um, but wireless wearable technology, especially wireless radiation, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, let's put it in simple terms. Those have been shown to deplete and really uh, decrease exclusion zone water. So again, a typical in indoor environment where we might be right next to our Wi-Fi router all day on a computer with wireless you know, mouse and keyboard and monitor and have our cell phone and maybe I'm wearing wireless headset or a, a watch. All of those things can really destroy exclusion zone water. So it's, it's kind of like this combination of let's see what we can do to reduce our exposure to those things plus support infrared for the body. That's great. Um, and, and maybe just a connection to draw for folks because, you know, there there's some, uh, I mean, several, um, sort of uh, health experts out there in the realm of, you know, complex chronic illness who talk about how like, you know, you really got to minimize Wi-Fi exposure. Um, and some patients will come to me and say, you know, like I shut off my Wi-Fi, I got rid of all my wearable Wi-Fi devices, this and the other thing. Um, you know, I've, I don't have a smart meter anymore, like whatever it is. And like, I don't really feel any different. Uh, whereas other patients are like, oh my gosh, that made all the difference in the world. Um, and I mean, from my perspective, and please let me know if your perspective on this differs, but I think maybe for some folks, maybe the ones who are really who feel a lot better when they do that, maybe they had just too many other factors that were inhibiting their ability to make easy water. And then it was just the Wi-Fi was the straw that broke the camel's back. Whereas the folks who didn't really feel much different, maybe they still have enough easy water kicking around that they're not really noticing an obvious difference when they shut those things off. So your take home message would be all of us should probably try to minimize the, the those non-native EMFs as much as possible. These like artificial EMFs, but um, maybe that's why some people feel better without the exposure and some people don't. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, that's, that's very likely. It's a pot. That's a high pos possibility. You know, no one's studying that. So it's kind of just bas basically going on our observations. So I think of it either as what's happening with exclusion zone water or what's happening at the level of the mitochondria themselves, mm -hmm. because those, those non-native EMFs, a different rabbit hole can kind of change intracellular signaling to make it very chaotic to both inside of the cell and to the mitochondria. And so I think that that's another thing too. Some people have more sensitivity to that, to kind of form what's called a cell danger response. And some of it depends on like, are you already, is your cell already un undergoing things that might be creating a, a danger response? And then you add these non-native EMFs to it and it just 
massively creates even more chaos in the cell. And so it's, 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 it's nuanced with that, you know? So, so that, but that's, I I like, I I totally agree with you. It kind of depends on where someone is at with their threshold and sometimes non-native EMFs because they've maybe cleared an intracellular pathogen, non-native EMFs are enough to really, um, uh, if you get rid of those, you're allowed to really calm that cell danger response and all of a sudden be like, Oh, my body can finally have the energetic capacity to heal. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. That's a great, great point. Yeah. And going down that rabbit hole of like what impact do non-native EMFs have like on mitochondrial function? It's like, oh man, like just you read that alone. It's like, oh, maybe I'll just go live out in the woods um, far (laughs) away from any cell towers. But I tell my clients, it's a fine line between knowledge and fear because mitochondrial mitochondria are responsive to fear as well, you know, so Mm -hmm. they'll shut down function based on fear. So it's like, okay, I'm aware of this. So now I'm making specific decisions to take off my wearable watch, not use my cell phone on my head. Um, you know, things like that, right. I've hardwired, I've got the old school, you know, my kids call it, you know, you got, you got the really old school setup with your workstation with the wired everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like, okay, so I, with that knowledge, I made some changes, but I'm not fearful of the fact that I'm going to be walking by a cell phone tower on my walk this morning. You know, we have to really balance that out. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, with some of the things you've talked about today and other things you've talked about in on your uh, social media posts and in your course, I'm sure like there's things you can do to kind of like fight back, if you will. So if you're like, yeah, I'm going to be around EMFs, it, it's just going to be a fact of life for most of us. Um, right. But yeah, we can bolster, our, you know, kind of uh, bulletproof our bodies, so to speak, um, or EMF proof our bodies, maybe in a sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. Great. Well, uh, and just for listeners, um, if you uh, check out um, Carrie's uh, Instagram profile, are, are you mostly on Instagram or are you on well, other platforms too? Instagram is my main social media yeah. place. So that's, okay. if you're, if this is interesting to you, go there. Cause there's like a thousand posts you can dive into. And then I am now finally launching my new website, carriebwellness.com. So right. that'll be another place for you to go to if you're interested okay. in this. And so. Perfect. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was going to say, um, if you go on Carrie's, uh, Instagram, like she has several posts, like just in the last, I don't know, month or so, where if you want other ideas for like, Oh, how can I enhance my easy water uh, production or what might be hindering it? Like there's other things on there too, which I wish we had more time because I'd like to get into that, but no, we're, we're starting to wind down here and there's, there's a few other, uh, uh, broader topics I like to touch on first. So sure. but, uh, <laughs> um, th- thanks for all this so far. It's been great. Um, so let me see here. Um, right. So it, you have, um, the, the third set or sorry, the, uh, I guess maybe the fourth section of your, uh, quantum foundations course is about mitochondrial healing, which, you know, is near and dear to my heart. As you kind of alluded to, I'm a big mitochondrial junkie, a mitochondriac, as some would say. Yep, yep. Um, and so, uh, one, one of the subsections of your uh, mitochondrial section is, um, uh, quote unquote, mitochondrial support supplements. Um, and so would you mind just kind of speaking to that section a little bit? Um, what, which ones seem to be the most important in your experience? Yeah, sure. You know, so there's other supplements that I think, I, I think that you, when I view the body from a quantum perspective, I try to kind of key in on supplements that don't necessarily work at the level of true biochemistry. They kind of have a, more of a profound impact on electrons and protons, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so the two that I key in on there are methylene blue and molecular hydrogen. I really think that those can be of massive benefit to people. Um, as we talked about earlier, methylene blue works really well with light, specifically red and infrared light, UV light. So I have often, I've often had clients use methylene blue um, because methylene blue, and I don't know if you've talked with other people about it on your podcast, but it, you know, it actually can, if, if, if our, or if our electron transport chain, which is where mitochondria make 
both water and ATP. So they basically make exclusions on water and ATP for us. If that's broken, methylene blue can stand in as a surrogate. Like if any of the machines on that transport chain are broken, methylene blue can act in as a surrogate. Methylene blue can donate electrons to it if it's needed. Uh, methylene blue can really help to clear out nitric oxide, which can bog down the chain. Uh, and so methylene blue is cool because it really facilitates that electron flow. It really facilitates mitochondrial health. Uh, and so I love that as an option for people. And I also like uh, molecular hydrogen because it's a selective antioxidant in that um, we, I think for a long time, we hear about things called uh, oxidants or reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species. We hear about these things as being bad. So mitochondria make reactive oxygen species and, and, and that, that's somehow bad. But we, what we now know, it's more nuanced than, than that. These oxidants are signaling, they're signaling things, right? I, I, they're actually biophotonic signaling, they're, they're light signaling. And so through this biophoton signaling, they're signaling to the membrane about certain, maybe different receptor activity on the membrane. They're signaling to the DNA about gene expression. And so a, a something we used to think we have to do is calm all of these oxidative species. And when we actually suppress them too much, we actually see harm, right? There was one study that really tipped me off in smokers where they tried to really calm all of this oxidation in smokers. And these smokers that actually received this therapy ended up dying and having worse outcomes. And so they had to stop the study early. Um, and I was like, wait a second. And so that's where you have to recognize we want some of this signaling so that a cell can properly say, hey, immune system, we need a little support here. Or the DNA can change and modify and produce certain proteins and molecules that we might need to support whatever the cell is, what's ever happening in the cell. So we need some of that signaling, but excessive signaling is where all of a sudden we start to you know, crash into a membrane and all the time we create what's called like these lipid, this lipid oxidation or peroxidation and, and these cascades of inflammation. And so molecular hydrogen kind of calms the signaling if it's, if it's over exuberant, still allowing the message to get through, but doesn't necessarily suppress it to the extent where we have to worry about it. Like we were talking about with that other study with the smokers. So it's a good one for clients who are either in high non-native EMF environments where they're always going to get a little bit more of that oxidative stress um, and, or someone again, maybe dealing with an oftentimes intracellular, right? An intracellular, um, something that's creating intracellular oxidation. We want to calm it a little bit, but rec make the immune system still recognize that something's happening here and it still needs support. Great. That's also, also very well said. I think, I think you've done this before, Carrie. If I, had to, if I, had to guess. <laughs> I like talking about this stuff, Brian. I, 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 I can tell. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Given that you have so many courses on all these topics too, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to be doing some CE um, through your <laughs> website soon, I think. Um, so uh, just a couple of questions about the methylene blue and hydrogen, because both topics I'm very fascinated by. Um, and just maybe a little rapid fire, because I know we don't have much time left. Um, so with the methylene blue, um, from what uh, your clients have told you or what you've observed otherwise, um, does um, sublingual methylene blue seem to work better than just regular capsules of methylene blue in your experience? Um, any difference there? Yeah, I, I actually find liquid methylene blue that goes into the stomach because in order for methylene blue to become an electron donor, it has to be reduced. It has to gain electrons and it does that in an acidic environment. 
And so the acidic environment of the stomach actually allows it to work a lot better. Hmm. An indication for me that a client has low stomach acid actually is if that methylene blue goes in and it goes right out super dark blue in their urine because hmm. it's like their body actually wasn't able to reduce it and then deliver it to where it was needed in the tissues because we all have some use of methylene blue. Hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's one. And oftentimes I've actually had other clinicians, not, I haven't done this in my clinic at all, but I've had other clinicians use ascorbic acid or something that actually is an acid to donor an electron donor basically to help the methylene blue do its job hmm. i find that the i find that the level in the in the in the mouth even though people say that there's a it's a better um proximity to the brain mm-hmm. i find that not to be the case i don't think that it's benefit beneficial it might be beneficial for someone maybe not dealing with a complex chronic illness to do mm-hmm. maybe a sublingual um but for people who are dealing with it and they need a lot of that reduced <laughs> reduced methylene blue stomach is the way to go. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, sorry, just having a quick note here. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, all right. Um, trying to type with one hand. Not very <laughs> that's talent. Um, what, what's that? Sorry. I said, that's a talent right there. You got, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> still working on that talent. Um, so when you say liquid, uh, cause I'm just thinking like liquid methylene blue equals like blue teeth for the rest of your life. Um, so are, are you, you're talking about like, it has to be in a liquid ahead of time or can it be capsules that open up in the stomach and mix with your stomach juices? I'm sure it can be capsules. I, uh, I've never played around with capsules. I, the, I vetted one brand called compass laboratories, USP 1% methylene blue. And that's the one that I recommend to my clients okay. when we're dealing with this. Um, and the way that we, I would say we, uh, the way I typically have them dosed is first thing in the morning, empty stomach. And it's like maybe two ounces of water. So okay. you, you put in the, the dose and you down it back and it's actually way less staining than if it's just has to dissolve, like either, you know, under the tongue or oh, for sure. in the cheek, imagine. right? That's yeah, yeah. super staining. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, super stained. You yeah. can always tell the methylene blue junkies at um, at the conferences is like their mouths are stained. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anyways, I have mixed feelings about it, but that's that's good to know. Um, and then with the hydrogen, um, which is another really fascinating topic, and like I find not very many people talk about it, even though there's been so many human clinical trials with hydrogen therapy. Um, in your experience, um, does it? Is it okay if it's like the tablets that dissolve in water and create the hydrogen gas? Does it need to be hydrogenated water, like with a hydrogen gas making machine on the spot? It does it have to be breathe, uh, inhaled hydrogen. Like, what's the what clinical application have you seen to be effective? I mean, all those are all those are effective, but um, typically, I, I typically I have clients who just because those other things there's a cost barrier to a lot of that other stuff. So I typically mm-hmm. just have clients start off with the um, tablets mm-hmm. in water, and as long as we're starting with a pure glass of water, right? I don't necessarily want to have tap water and toxins ingested with this. If people understand that what they're drinking is the bubbles, right? Mm-hmm. Drink the gas that's being produced. If you can do that within the window of time, which is anywhere between like one to two minutes, then you're going to get the therapeutic effect because just like sunlight kind of kicks off cascades, molecular hydrogen does the same thing. It doesn't have to, we don't need to have it all the time. It's just kicking off almost like an immune system awareness, or it's kicking, kicking off an antioxidant awareness in the body uh, to kind of go to work. And so you just need to capture it and give it that signal for it to do its thing. Okay. And um, uh, is there a particular brand of hydrogen tablets you found to be more effective than others or kind of a go-to? You know, I've actually seen um, 
all the brands that I've tried, I've actually seen efficacy. So HRW, hydrogen rich water is one. Uh, Quicksilver Scientific is another. Mercola brand is another. Uh, a client just came across another brand that I can't think of that was an Australian brand that actually is working just fine. So yeah, there's, I, I think now that the technology is understood and that you want to reach a certain threshold of parts per million in a certain amount of time when that, while that gas is bubbling, I think if you can capture that, then you're okay. Okay. Great. Well, I'm um, just with the last uh, minute or so that we have left here, Carrie, and I wish I could pick your brain for twice as long because I still have a whole <laughs> laundry list of questions here. Um, so just kind of tying all this into complex chronic illness. So, you know, folks dealing with like mold toxicity, you know, chronic Lyme disease, um, heavy metal accumulation, mass cell activation syndrome, like lots of stuff going on. Sure. A lot of these folks, you know, depending on the clinician they're working with, they might be on like really, really elaborate protocols, you know, treating multiple therapeutic targets at once. Sure. Um, so um, I, I guess from, from my point of view as a clinician, the way I kind of think about these um, types of things we've talked about today is, um, you know, if we're implementing some of these changes and thankfully a lot of them are lifestyle changes, a couple of them are supplements we've talked about, but a lot of them are, you know, like things that are free, like going and being exposed to the sun or whatnot, yep. or, you know, trying to mitigate, uh, minimize EMF exposure. Um, I look at these things as being, um, sort of enhancements to their protocol that if you're doing these things slash avoiding this or that, um, then it's probably going to help to, um, heal, but help them along the way with their healing journey faster. Um, is, is that kind of roughly how you perceive it as well? Or is there a different take that you have on it? No, that's beautiful. That's exactly it, Brian. So like, I, I also teach a certification program in this for practitioners and we get practitioners from all sorts of angles, whether some of them we've, we've had, um, dentists, we've had physical therapists, you know, MDs, NDs, DCs, DOs, uh, nutritionists. And it's like, everyone is at, is looking to support what they currently do. So yeah. we all have some sort of tools in our toolbox to assist, especially complex chronic illness, because it's called complex chronic illness for a reason. Right. And so yeah. there, there is a lot of sometimes detective work that needs to be done, but what I am seeing is that when we help people recognize that light is a signal light will help their hormones and their other signals and all these things that we're trying to do with other lifestyle and nutrition and supplement changes light enhances that during the day when we get the right signaling and darkness enhances it at night so making sure the body knows oh now's the time to regenerate all that stuff all those supplements that carrie gave me to or to regenerate now's the time to do that right and so that's i think is really really key yes this is this is kind of a foundation upon which you can do your amazing work that you do, Brian, and then just give people a couple extra tools to help facilitate healing at, at, at a faster pace. Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do, Carrie. This has uh, been really a great conversation. And yeah. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to tell all my, um, you know, uh, uh, folks on my newsletter and on my social media following and all that. Just I'm really excited to promote this uh, interview. So it's, it's been great. Um, uh, we've already talked about where folks can find you on Instagram, um, your pending website. I'll put those uh, links in the show notes. Um, are there any other thing uh, things that folks should know about where they can access you or anything else that uh, you have? That's that great. Have. No, those, those, those are the two places that I really am most often. So just connect with me in any way you can. And, um, if you have any questions, like just, just start, right. Just start applying light it. Don't overthink it. <laughs> just go outside and see if you can sync up to those signals and see how your body feels. So. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Carrie. Really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks so much to everyone for tuning in. Uh, this concludes another episode of the overcoming chronic illness podcast. So, uh, thanks for your attention and talk to you next time.